Welcome to the Mosaic Church Sermon Podcast. Mosaic Church seeks to engage the modern age with the historic Christian faith. If you don't have a home church, please don't use this podcast as a substitute for being a member of a local community of faith. Whether you call Mosaic your home or not, we hope that you find this sermon convicting and encouraging in your walk with Jesus. Here's our lead pastor, Pastor Greg Brown, with this week's sermon. If you uh, want to start flipping to the passage we're going to be in this morning, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 11, verses 17 through 34. Uh, this is the passage on the Lord's Supper. Uh, this, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm excited. Uh, last week's passage was tough. Did you all study uh, 1 Corinthians uh, 11, the first seven, 16 verses at all last week? It's a, it's a rough spot when, you, when it comes to study. Uh, and so this week I was like, man, a little bit of relief is great. Could you just talk about the Lord's Supper? What a, what a wonderful gift that the Lord has given us in the Lord's Supper. Um, but this passage, while it's, it's about the Lord's Supper, it's, it's more about uh, unity. And when I started thinking about unity, I thought to myself, sometimes I, I kind of wonder if social media should actually be uh, left to the world. If Christians would be better off to just hand it over to the world and go, you know what, y'all can have your thing. Um, it's, uh, it, it's not that solid gospel ministry can't be done in that format, all right? Uh, I believe that it can and it does happen, uh, but I believe uh, that, that it can be good for the world even to see Christians uh, conversing about their varying convictions, about different doctrinal positions, and having loving, robust debates on important topics. Good things to do in front of the world to some degree. But have you ever gone to the comments section of a great gospel-centered social media post? It's awful. It's awful. It's a terrible place to be. And it's not just hostile atheists either. It's, and, and it's not just theology that divides us. It's internal conversations that are happening as if we aren't brothers and sisters in Christ. Can you imagine the world looking in on that stuff? Is it? it I, I believe it is truly by God's grace that anyone is ever helped by social media. <laughs> I have strong feelings in this place. Not that I don't have an Instagram account, I do, but I never post. I just scroll through it every once in a while. Anyway, but like the church in Corinth, the big C church, the church as it stands, seems now more deeply divided than ever, doesn't it? What if it could be different? We may not be able to reform the whole church but what if for our small part of the Big C Church, we could stand for strong theological convictions, robust discussion, loving disagreement, and Christian unity? What if we could do that? Yet it feels dangerous to talk about unity sometimes, doesn't it? We're so worried that error will infect us, that it becomes easier to act like we alone are the one true church. Just us. No more, no less. Of course, we'd never say this with our mouths, would we? But it has become easier to divide and isolate than to disagree in unity. The problem is that one individual local church is not the whole body of Christ. Just like each church needs every member functioning together in the gifts that God has given them, the big C church needs every church functioning together, unified. Look, it's good to divide from heresy. That's a good kind of division. But we must not kill the body while we root out the cancer. I recognize that degrees of distinction are, are sometimes necessary within the body of Christ. Theological convictions can often lead to incompatibilities, particularly in corporate worship. Yet distinction is not division. My fingers on my hand are distinct. They can do things autonomously from one another, but they are not divided from my body. There remains a connection. They're separate, but they're united. They share the same blood and the same body. You're kind of picking up where I'm going from here. Maybe some of you are paying attention. The same blood and the same body, and they serve the same head. It's important for us to remember what unites us. Otherwise, division will run rampant 
and we will end up cutting the body of Christ into pieces. And so we must strive for Christian unity while skillfully and surgically removing error and heresy. We must remain united in Christ. His body, his blood, his gospel. When we forget Christ, we lose everything that makes us Christian. And we lose the unity that we were intended to have. In Corinth, this had fallen apart. The people had forgotten Christ in their gatherings, and they were deeply fractured. Let's look at this passage this morning again, 1 Corinthians 11, verses 7 through 34, or 17 through 34. Uh, and if you wouldn't mind, please stand with me as we read the word of the Lord this morning. It says this, But in the following instructions I do not commend you, because when you come together it is not for better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks of the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. If we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If one is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's go to him in prayer. Lord, I pray this morning that you would help us. Help us to see the truth of your word. Help us to see that Christ unites us. Help us, Lord, to see other Christians, other churches, not as enemies, but as brothers and sisters. I pray, Lord God, that you would impress upon us the importance of your gospel, the good news to us, that, Lord, we can be saved by the blood of Christ. Lord, we pray that you would impart us this salvation, Lord, for all those here today who do not know you, Lord, that you would give them salvation today, Lord, that you would convert hearts, that you would change minds, and that, Lord, you would do what only you can do, and that you would even sanctify each and every one of us here this morning. I thank you, Lord, for this. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Y'all can have a seat. Lights are back, but that's okay. <laughs> The, uh, the church of Corinth was a pretty messed up group of folks, and I love that. I mean, uh, I, I don't love that they were dealing with all kinds of sin and infighting, but I, I love that we can relate to them. You know what I mean? I, I mean, how many of you know that we're all pretty messed up people? I can still kind of see you. You can raise your hands. Yeah. Kind of messed up people. How many of you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you need forgiveness for the things you've thought, said, and done. Raise your hands. Amen. Every single day. Amen. Every one of us here is a sinner. We don't live like we should. And like all of us, the church of Corinth was dealing with some difficult stuff. In fact, their difficulties were so deep and so accepted that Paul begins this passage by saying that their worship gatherings were for the worse. Read with me in 17 through 19 of this chapter. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not 
for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. You would think that coming together as a church might be the one thing that you could do that would always be for the better, wouldn't you? It's the one thing that you could probably do that's always good, but that's not the case. In fact, this is nothing new. In an especially dark period of Israel's history, God spoke through the prophet Malachi. It says, Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. Worship, coming together for worship, is not always for the better. Why would God say such a thing? Didn't he command sacrifices? You're probably thinking this, like, what well, God commanded sacrifices. And didn't he command us to not neglect meeting together? In Hebrews 10.25, it says, And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. Doesn't God command us to come together? Why would he say that coming together is a bad thing? Why would he say it's for the worse? Because in Malachi and in 1 Corinthians, God's people are told that their meetings are not simply useless but detrimental. And in both cases, God's people had forgotten what worship was meant to be. They had forgotten their God in worship. There's nothing more essential to the how of Christian life than the law summarized. Love God, love your neighbor. I want to point something out to you that might be a revelation to you. When you come to corporate worship, really in your entire life, you are not the point. You are not the point. God is. And through him, our love can go out to others. In the case of the Corinthians, their love for one another had been surpassed by their love for themselves being the best. It seems, historically speaking, that the rich folk may have been treating worship services like parties they were putting on for their friends. This is common in the first century to have a house church. They didn't have formal church buildings. The synagogues had kicked out most of the Christians, and especially in this, Jew, this non-Jewish context, they probably wouldn't have been able to go there anyway. And so they'd meet together in houses. This is pretty common. And so when you had a house party in ancient Greece, if you were the host, you would receive... Uh, the position of honor at the dining table. People would come into your house and you would sit there and you would receive people there and then your closest friends would sit near you. Now, interestingly, these houses, even the largest houses in Corinth, uh, we've discovered through archaeological digs and things like that, that uh, the, uh, the dining room, the formal dining room of these houses only could seat about nine to 12 people comfortably. Very large houses, but very small dining room. What do you do with the rest of the people when you have a church of more than 12 people then? Well, they had other larger rooms called atriums that they would kind of shove all the ribble rabble into. So you get your close friends in one room, and then everybody else sort of goes to another room. And when dinner was served, and they were enjoying the Lord's Supper, so they would have had actually a full meal most likely, and then bread and wine as part of that ritual. And so they would, uh, they would all get together and everybody would sort of eat at their own time. And so the, the host would receive the best choicest morsels, the best wine. His friends would get slightly lesser stuff. And then all of those people that were out there would receive lesser service, lesser food. And if you showed up late at all, you probably weren't going to get fed at all. In fact, these people that, that uh, arrived late would have been the, sort of the lowest of the low socio socioeconomically speaking because they were working folk. And in ancient Greece, there was no day off. You just worked every single day. And so if they held these meetings at any point during the day on a Sunday, then there was no chance that you would get there before the food was gone. And so there was this sense of elitism, where the host and his friends would enjoy wonderful food, 
and then all the rest of the church would be relegated out there and they should just count themselves lucky to be here. What a terrible way to live. But this elitism crept in. They thought themselves better than others and ultimately they had forgotten Christ. Yet some remained faithful. 1 Corinthians eleven nineteen. Remember this, it says, For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Like the remnant of Israel remaining steadfast while the, the nation went wild with sin, some of the Corinthians had stayed true to good doctrine and good practice. Paul recognizes that such cracks are sometimes necessary in accordance with God's sovereign plan. When people veer off into error, the tension between that error and true Christianity causes division. And you might think that that's, that's the, everyone to, in that situation is necessarily to blame, and that's not always the case. Sometimes division happens because everybody's sinning. But sometimes division happens when one group embraces sin and pu starts pulling away while the other group remains steadfast in Christ. And Paul recognizes that this could be the case. He says, in fact, there are some of you that can even be recognized as true Christians. In one sense, this kind of division is good. True Christianity becomes more easily distinguishable from error when this kind of division happens. But in another sense, there is no such thing as happy division, is there? No such thing. Division always means something else was already terribly wrong. It's just, that's the end result. You think about like identifying problems versus symptoms. Division is the symptom. The problem was that people had forgotten Christ. If the Corinthians had remembered who united them, they would not have been divided. This passage is a call to reunification in Christ. He's calling those who have forgotten Jesus to remember him and to live in gospel unity. He goes on, verse 20 through 22. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. The dinners that these people were calling the Lord's Supper weren't really the Lord's Supper at all, were they? They were the Lord's Supper. They were the host's supper. It was meant to bring attention to the host. The host was supposed to be thought of as such a benevolent and wonderful person. And when you walked in, you were lucky to be there. And if you got to sit at his table, oh my goodness, how cool is it to sit at the cool kid's table? Basically what it was, let's be real. I mean, we're all just third graders. But they, they would bring all the people in and they'd say, you know, like, come on in. And it was all about the host. Again, at these parties, it would have been common for, for some people to even eat and drink to excess, while those who are furthest removed from the host would go hungry. They would arrive, and again, they, they, would, they would be encouraged to just say, well, you know what? It's, a, it's just a good thing that you're here. And man, like, <laughs> what a terrible like, form of lip service is that, right? To experience no hospitality and to be told you're lucky you're here, like, that's, that's not hospitality, that is not Christian hospitality, and that is not the Lord's Supper. This sort of thing uh, created factions in their worship services. They were divided because they ceased to remember Christ in their fellowship. Because the Lord's Supper isn't about uh, giving more to those who already have more than enough. The Lord's Supper is about all receiving without distinction. Rich or poor, young or old, male or female, no matter our nationality, our ethnicity, or our background, we are all fed by the same bread and the same cup. That's the Lord's Supper. It's a visual enactment of the gospel. No matter who you are, where you've come from, what you look like, or what you've done, 
you can receive God's grace, forgiveness, and eternal life. Amen? Faith, real trust, is all that's required of you. Trust that your sin deserves eternal punishment. Trust that the body and blood of Christ are sufficient for your salvation. Trust that Jesus rose from the grave to give you eternal life. Trust that he sits at the right hand of God the Father, making intercession for all those who believe. Trust. Faith. Faith is active trust. You understand what I'm saying? There's this idea that you can, you can go, well, like, I understand that this is a truth claim. That's the first level of knowledge. The second level of knowledge is I acknowledge that it is true. The third level of knowledge, which is real faith, is I trust that thing. I trust that it's true. I trust my life to it. I trust my eternity to Christ. That's real faith. And the only cost to any of us, the only cost is your sin. Now, you might think that's a cost, but it's not. It's debt forgiveness. But you must give it up. No, you don't have to be perfect to come to Jesus. You don't have to clean yourself up first. He knows all the worst things about you, but you must repent. Turn away from your sin and trust in Jesus as your Lord and your Savior. Hear me clearly. The choice is this. Forsake sin and live for Christ or continue in sin and forsake Christ. That's it. No in-between. If you are here this morning and you are not a believer in Christ, I would encourage you not to make an eternal mistake today. One choice leads to heaven and eternal life. The other leads to hell and eternal punishment. Do not make an eternal mistake. Whether you have believed for decades, though, or you've never believed before, the call is actually the same. This is why we never get past the gospel, do we? Never. No. The call is the same. Repent of your sin and place your trust in Jesus. When you find your faith lacking, repent and believe. When you fall short, repent and believe. When you feel hopeless, repent and believe. So, when we approach the Lord's table and we receive the bread and the cup, it isn't about us anymore. It's about Jesus. It's not about us receiving. It's not about some distinction being made there. No, it's about him giving us what we need. There is no room, my friends, for selfishness in Christian fellowship. You have to recognize this. Because if you have faith in Christ, if you truly trust him, and you trust him to the point where, yes, you agree that every single word he ever said is true, you believe this, and you believe that he has spoken through his apostles and his prophets, then you have to believe that everything was given to us. There is no room for selfishness. There is no room for pride in Christianity. Life, breath salvation, eternal life. Every single bit of it was given to you by God himself. We are all united in that. There is no differentiation there. Every single one of us receives the same if we are in Christ. Salvation is wrought by grace and received through faith at no cost to any of us. No cost at all. This is incredible and scandalous, and each one of us is united in Christ because of that same grace. But the grace you receive so freely was not cheap. Have you ever heard this distinction before? I don't know how much I've talked about this here. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer uh, makes a, a pretty clear distinction on this. He talks about free grace versus cheap grace. Cheap grace says... I get my fire insurance, I prayed a prayer one time, and I can go off and do whatever I want, and I don't really care. I don't really care, because I don't recognize the cost. That's cheap grace. Oh, there's grace for that. You ever heard that? You ever heard people that aren't Christians talk to each other like that? I've heard that. I'm like, man, do you know what that means? 
That means somebody else paid for that. Cheap grace is is different from free grace. Our grace is free. It's free to us, but it was bought with a cost. And we recognize that every single sin was paid for by Christ. Every time that we mess up, it was one stripe on his back. It was one more moment on the cross. The grace that we celebrate is not cheap. Not cheap. It came at a cost. And at the Lord's Supper, we are reminded of the cost of that salvation. That cost was the death of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three through 26 says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you will proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. While there is certainly a time and a place to get into the multitude of theological disputes about the presence of Christ in the Lord's Supper. Some of you were hoping I would go there today. I love y'all. We should have a conversation about that. I have all sorts of interesting thoughts on it. Um, But while I, I think that that's an important discussion to be had amongst Christians and theologians across the ages, I believe it is far more important in the context of this larger passage, to consider how Paul is redirecting the Corinthians' practice of the Lord's Supper and perhaps even worship in general. I hope this goes without saying, but the Lord's Supper, again, is not about you. Yes, it involves you, but it isn't about you. It's in remembrance of Jesus. Yes, his body is for you. The new covenant is for you, but it's not about you. As we come to the table, yes, we receive, but the object of our attention and adoration is Christ. This is the best way to celebrate the Lord's Supper, is to come and have Christ as your focus. Don't think about what you receive, what what you're getting out of it. Look to Christ. Celebrate what he's already done. As the table, yes, we receive, but the object of our attention is him. Likewise, when you sing, when you pray, when you listen attentively to the sermon, I hope all of you are doing that this morning. When you're doing this, I want you to know you, my friends, are not the point. Jesus is the point. I can't stress this enough. This is what leads to that consumeristic Christianity that so many people love to sit and criticize. But it's, it's not just that. It's not, it's not so overt as that sometimes is. I mean, look, if, if you didn't feel like coming last week because what you get out of Sunday morning worship isn't worth getting out of bed and getting out in the rain, you've missed the point. You're comparing what you get versus the cost of it, which is getting a little bit of rain on you. And you said, you know what? What I get there isn't enough. That's Okay. Let's have a conversation about that later. But the point is you've placed the focus in the wrong place. It's about Christ. It's about his glory. It's about you giving to him, not about him giving to you. It's about proclaiming who he is. It's about proclaiming his glory. And it's wonderful because in Matthew 6.33, it says, seek the kingdom of God first in his righteousness and all these other things will be added to you. What if it's better to give than to receive? What if worship isn't actually about you? What if it's actually about Jesus, giving him glory? What if when you sing, it's not about you having your satisfying little personal time with Jesus, and it's more about bestowing and reflecting back the glory of God into this world? What if it's about that? What if the reason that you come every single Sunday is to give glory to God? What if that's why you come to worship? What if worship isn't about you? 
Because if Christ is central to our lives, then our, our speech, in our speech and interactions and, and, and everything, then we can be confident that everything we need will be provided. Some of you are like, man, that's risky. Yeah. It's worth it. Christ is central to our worship. Then we can be confident that our worship is Christian worship. If you come and you just, all you need is your little experience. I just want to have my little, my little thing. You've missed the point. You can't lose sight of Christ. You can go and have a religious experience in a lot of different places in this world. You want the tinglys? Go for it. There's a lot of different religions that will give you the tinglys. Don't go looking for an experience. Look to glorify God. Are you worshiping the God of the Bible or are you worshiping the God of people's imagination? The Corinthians had lost sight of Christ. They were remembering themselves more than Jesus when they ate. They were celebrating the bread and the wine of the host, not the body and blood of Christ given and poured out for his people. Life in church by the book is life in church with Jesus at its center. Where he is everything, there is peace and joy even in the face of brokenness, disagreement, and difficulty. But where Jesus is not our motivation, not our prize, not our song, not our joy, not our prayer, then we are bound for division, selfishness, strife, and ultimately judgment and discipline. Continue with me in verse 27. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, so, and so eat of the bread and drink the cup. For anyone who dr- eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. A couple of little difficult spots here. The, the first part in this passage, for anyone who drinks, eats and drinks without discerning the body, you might go, well, what does that mean? Um, I tend to side on, uh, on the side of the scholars that, who say that this means uh, that for anyone who eats and drinks without understanding that they're in the context of a larger body, that is the body of Christ, then they eat and drink judgment on themselves. So the other way to view this is to, is to say something about uh, when you look at the bread and the wine, if you don't discern the, uh, the body and blood of Christ, if you don't see them there, if you don't consider those as such, uh, then you're drinking judgment on yourself. But I think in the grander context, I think body here means church. But regardless, this passage kind of strikes fear in you before you approach the Lord's table, doesn't it? I think it has by, for a great many people over the course of the past two millennia. And look, I'm, I, what I'm not going to do this morning is soften the edges on this passage. The edges are there. They cut. Those who partake in the Lord's Supper unworthily should stand in fear of judgment. Period. End of story. In Corinth, God had even visited sickness and death on some who failed to consider the whole church when they came together for the Lord's Supper. And while I don't believe we should read this as normative, I do believe Hebrews 12, 6, that the Lord disciplines the one whom he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Even if the discipline of the Lord is that we may not be condemned along with the world, that's verse 32, even if that's the case, I do not wish God's temporal judgment on anyone. And I would spare you from this, my friends. I would have you consider your hearts. I would have you consider those around you as you come to the Lord's table. I would have you repent of your sins because I would spare you from the temporal judgment of God. This is why we warn unbelievers and believers in unrepentant sin away from the table every single week. We call it fencing the table. It's a pastor word for you. But it simply means that we draw a distinction between the believer who is faithfully walking with Christ and those who do not. 
And look, I want you to know that there is a marked difference between the struggling Christian and the unrepentant sinner. One trusts in Christ, but fails to be perfect as, the, as he desires to be. The other trusts in his sin. For those in the latter group, every single week we bid you to repent and believe. This is for your good and for your joy. We want you to be saved. We want you to be saved from not only temporal judgment, but eternal judgment. We don't want you to come to the table and experience God's chastisement in your life. We want you to repent and believe. We want you to come to the table joyfully and happily in Christ. If you're living in sin and your life is falling apart. Let those negative consequences of sin drive you to repentance and faith in Christ. That's who you are. If that's who you are, think about how the Lord might be disciplining you. But for those who are sinning and getting away with it, I would be even more afraid. Perhaps God, perhaps he will grant you the grace of temporal judgment that will lead you to repentance. But it is not guaranteed. For some, the end comes unexpectedly and without warning. Don't lie to yourself and others. Just don't. Don't try to lie to God. It doesn't work. He knows. He knows all the most terrible stuff in your heart. He knows exactly what you've done. Lay it aside. Repent. and Put your faith in Jesus. Don't lie to yourself. Look again at verse 31. If we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. What does Paul mean? He's saying if we just saw ourselves as we really are, if we understood who we really were in, in, our, in ourselves, if we really took the time to judge ourselves rightly, we would see that we are wretched sinners and that we are worthy of damnation without Christ. If only we would admit that we cannot do anything righteous in and of ourselves, if only we could see that we are nothing before a holy God, if only we could see that it is only his perfect grace that can save us, if only we judged ourselves truly, then we would not be judged. If we would only see ourselves as we truly are, and if we would only see God for who he truly is, then we would not be judged. None of us in this room is better than another. All of us are sinners. And if we have been saved by Christ, then it is not because of anything in us. We have to admit that we are bereft of, of any worth that makes it so that God has to save us or that would give us merit enough to be saved. No, it's all of grace. In the body of Christ, we are all sinners called saints. How many of you know this? Give me an amen. I know it because I know my heart. I know the extravagant grace of Jesus. Some of the Corinthians had forgotten that Jesus had given them grace beyond what they ever could deserve in their celebrations at the Lord's Supper. And because they continued to call it the Lord's Supper, while they segregated and alienated those who were different from them, God visited judgment upon them. We need to be conscientious. We need to be cognizant that Jesus remains central to everything that we do and that we not only give him lip service, but we act like it. That's the problem here is that they were still giving him lip service. They were still calling it the Lord's Supper, after all. But no, it was not the Lord's Supper because they relegated some less worthy people to the outside. That's not how that works. None of us is worthy. Only Christ is worthy. My friends, I, I don't, I feel like I have to say this. I, don't, I feel like I shouldn't have to say this, but I'm going to say it anyway. I don't care how a person acts, looks, or speaks if they are saved by Christ, they are family and should be treated as such. 
Did you know that Sunday is still the most segregated day of the week? Now look, I realize that there are theological differences and different traditions and all that sort of thing, all sorts of excuses, but why? When somebody that looks different than you comes into this place, treat them like family. We were talking about Easter uh, a few weeks back, and uh, yeah, we're already prepping for Easter. It's about, what, a month away? Uh, we started thinking about it in December, I think. Um, we were talking about it, and, and one thing that came out of that discussion that, that I so enjoy was that our, our mentality of whether this is an outreach thing or it's an inreach thing, we're trying to figure out whether it was like a community event that we were trying to invite people into or if it was kind of just for our, our local body. How does this work? How do we allocate the budget? Things like that. We were talking about all these things. And I realized as we were talking, talking about it, or maybe somebody else in the conversation mentioned it, we should just be extraordinarily hospitable. Treat others like us like we would treat us. Welcome them in. Give them a hug. Say what's up. Ask them how they're doing. Bring them in. Give, give them, and look, how would we celebrate Easter with just ourselves, with our families? How would we do that? Well, we'd try to make it a little special, right? We'd come up with a few extra little things that we would do on that day just to, to make it memorable, to remember what we're celebrating that day. That's what we would do for us, wouldn't it? What if we just did that for everybody who came in the door? We invite the community out and we say, yes, this is a Christian worship service. We're not doing a whole bunch of extra stuff. We're doing a few things that are nicely hospitable, but we're here to worship, and that's okay. What if we just treated everyone who walked through the door like family? Because no one is better than another. Discern, that is, consider highly the body of Christ around you, and count them no less worthy than yourself. And if you do that, you're doing well. 1 Corinthians 11, 33-34. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If one is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you do come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. When worship stops being about us and more about Jesus, we can finally begin to see the body as it is. It's a mosaic of broken people redeemed, placed intentionally together, and made beautiful by the hand of God. That's the body of Christ. If we look around, if we stop thinking about ourselves so much, if we keep our eyes on Jesus and look at others through that lens, then we can start to see the body of Christ as it is. Broken sinners, saved by grace, being sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Once we can start to discern the body, we can count others more significant than ourselves. It's Philippians 2.3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. There is no room for pride in the faithful, faithful Christian. If you're tempted to be proud, remember Christ's humility. What did he do? He left behind deity. He came down, became obedient. If you're tempted to think highly of yourself, remember the depths of your depravity. Look inside your own heart. And then, then from that point, from that lowest point, wherever you've been, from that lowest point, look up to the mountain of God's grace and go, that was all because he reached down and took me to the top. You are not better than others. If you're tempted to think of others as lesser than yourself, remember who you once were. Center your understanding of yourself on Christ and then view others from that perspective. That's why Paul says you should wait for others. He, this, this would have been maybe difficult. Because if they were having this, this dinner, it started at 3 p.m., but nobody got off work until 6 p.m., he was saying, wait until 6 p.m. when everybody shows up. It might have been difficult for some. We can apply this principle in many areas of our lives. Wait for people. Consider them. Give them more honor 
than you give yourself. When you invite people into your home, when you invite people into this church, give them more honor than you would give yourself. Don't do, like, I, I know you're supposed to treat others as you would like to be treated. Maybe treat them better. Consider them worthy of more honor. Perhaps if we, uh, if we looked at unbelievers, whether of other religions or, or the irreligious, with the lens of Christ, we would begin to see that even unbelievers, even people who are hostile toward Christianity, that they are no less worthy of hearing the gospel than we were. Maybe those people that are hard to reach are the very ones that need to hear the gospel the most. Perhaps if we looked at other Christians with that lens of humility, we would begin to see that those people over there somewhere are sinners saved by grace just like us, and that we should help one another. This is so easy to do, isn't it? To become isolated in your own little Christian world. To look at others with disdain and go, oh, well, like they, they don't believe the right thing about this or that or whatever, this tertiary matter, quaternary matter, good word, quaternary, fourth, right? Um, the people, like, we, we tend to judge others, and we go, like, oh, well, I can't have fellowship with that person over there. They believe differently than me on this one little tiny thing. I can't have fellowship with them. Oh, come on. We've forgotten Christ. Who unites us? It's Jesus if we looked at those people over there, we'd go, man, they're sinners saved by grace just like us, and we could probably work together on a lot of stuff. Maybe if we looked at other churches with that lens, we would begin to see that all those other churches out there are the glory of God refracted through broken saints struggling to fight the good fight just like us. You know what refracted means? Split, splintered. The light sort of goes out everywhere because it's imperfect it's broken people but it's all for god's glory if they trust in jesus as their lord and savior it's for his glory with christ as our focus and our foundation we begin to see others as we should in more traditional churches i love this that uh they they, they tend to wear robes uh, now, interestingly, they, they tend to wear robes because the, the common people wore robes when robes were first brought into the church. Did you know that? Like, I'm wearing jeans and a, and, uh, and a, a sweater today. This is what, well, not many of you are wearing this today, but uh, this is what I wear. Um, this is the, the, the garb of the common folk. This is the same reason that they started wearing robes in, uh, in churches back in the day. Uh, it was just what normal people would wear, and so they didn't want to c confer any additional like respect or honor upon the priest, the pastor, the uh, the the friar, the monk, whoever it was. They just looked like normal folk. I thought that was kind of cool, but today in churches, people tend to use robes, and and there's something beautiful about it. It's sort of changed a little bit, and and it, it has actually potentially become more biblical because when you wear a robe. Everybody looks the same. There's no room for, it, and look, it's practical, because there's no room for like Sister Susie wearing the, the, shirt, the skirt that's just a little bit too short on the platform, right? Like, robes are practical. But man, what an incredible image that everybody is clothed in the same thing. Everyone looks the same. So whereas now we struggle to see each other as we should. There will come one day when we will finally see clearly. I'm going to read a longer passage here to close. And you can close your eyes and listen. Um, you can just receive it. I want you to consider this day when our focus will be perfectly Christ and we will all be clothed in his righteousness. Revelation 7, 9 through 17. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude 
that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me saying, who are these clothed in white robes and from when, where have they came? Come. I said to them, sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation, and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more, the sun shall not strike them, nor scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Thanks for listening to the Mosaic Church Sermon Podcast. For more information about Mosaic, including location and service times, or to support us financially, visit our website at mosaicrva.com or find us on Instagram and Facebook at Mosaic Church RVA. Remember, it's not about us, it's all about Jesus.